0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. Senator Cory Gardner has a lot of questions about the summit that just wrapped up between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Gardner, a Republican, chairs the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia. He spoke to me earlier this morning from the Capitol. So the U.S. obviously granted a meeting with Kim Jong-un with its highest leader, and it seems that uh, President Trump has agreed to stop war games uh, in concert with South Korea. Uh, Has the U.S. given up too much at this point?
1: Well, I I think we have a very thin agreement and some statements made at a press conference by President Trump that need to be clarified, and I hope that clarification comes soon. I have supported the continued maximum pressure application, both economically and diplomatically, on the North Korean regime. Uh, There's some confusion about what he meant by war games exercises. Uh, He also talked about continued progress and good faith efforts being made to denuclearize We have read in in public uh, reports that U.S. forces Korea has not received such an order uh, from Pacific Command. So uh, that's an area that needs to be uh, clarified. Uh, I think we have to continue our efforts both militarily uh, to uh, work with our South Korean partners as well as economic and diplomatic isolation to pursue maximum pressure. I think that's very important that we continue to do so.
0: It seems the War Games Agreement, if there is one, caught the South Koreans by surprise as well. Sounds like it caught you by surprise?
1: Well look, I think it needs to be clarified. I think there was a press conference, uh, conversations that we were not a part of uh, privately between the President and Kim Jong-un. We just don't know exactly what he means by that. The good news out of the summit, I think cautious optimism was warranted. Uh, it sounds like denuclearization is there, but you know we've got to continue pressure. I'd like to see that pressure continue on military exercises as well. Let me
0: ask you if you think North Korea's humanitarian record, which is pretty abysmal, ought to be part of these discussions as well.
1: North Korea has one of the most abysmal, as you mentioned, uh, human rights records uh, in any country in the world. There's a lot of bad actors out there, and North Korea is at the top of this list. Today, I'll be meeting with defectors from North Korea once again, human rights victims in my office today. I continue to engage with uh, victims of the the Kim family's uh, regimes over the various decades. Uh, and how poorly uh, they were treated, tortured, uh, and uh, dealt with. There's still 200,000 men, women, and children and political gulags in North Korea. This should be a part of these conversations. North Korea will never be welcomed, uh, nor should they ever be welcomed to the community of global nations as long as they fail to treat their people with dignity and respect that international law requires.
0: Have you heard enough about human rights from this administration in these negotiations?
1: You know, I think uh, the strategic patience uh, doctrine of the last eight years ignored North Korea's bad behavior on both the nuclear weapons program as well as human rights violations. I'd like to see more being done uh, on every front, uh, under the Trump administration, under the Obama administration, about uh, human rights violations. That's why I've introduced legislation on. Uh, Asia that would include North Korean human rights violations uh, to require mandatory sanctions on North Korean human rights violators. That's why I continue to press other countries around the globe to expel the restaurant workers that North Korea is using to gain wages that are sent back to North Korea to prop up the regime. That's why I continue to press China and others to stop the slave labor programs that they basically have that are propping up the North Korean regime. But it's something that needs to be a part of this discussion. But I think it's also important to recognize that now that we've had this first initial meeting, uh, the fact that denuclearization remains on the table is, is a hopeful sign.
0: Let me return to my first question Has the U.S. given up too much?
1: You know, again, we we don't know out of this thin agreement. I think that's the challenge. The United States shouldn't give up anything until we get those uh, concrete, verifiable steps toward denuclearization.
0: We have one minute left. You are co-sponsoring legislation in the Senate with Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts that basically says, hey, federal government, if a state has legalized marijuana, get off their back. Do you have a confidence that it would find support in the House?
1: you know, it's got a great bipartisan coalition of supporters in the House, as it does in the Senate. Uh, if you look at the the makeup of the co-sponsors, you've got people like Ken Buck from Colorado, uh, who's on the legislation. You've got people like Matt Gates who's a prominent Freedom Caucus member, you also have leading uh, liberal lions like Earl Blumenauer on the legislation. So uh, this has a strong cross-section of people. Uh, David Joyce, the primary sponsor over there, is an Ohio Republican, a middle-of-the-road Republican, so to speak, uh, who's interested in this. So you have a spectrum of Democrats, Republicans across the board, House and Senate, who are run this legislation. And I think we'll, uh, with, with the president's support now, make this something that uh, can be enacted into law.
0: Senator, thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. Republican Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado speaking with me this morning. He sits on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Customers in Colorado are buying more and more smokable marijuana and edibles, and the number of recreational dispensaries has grown nearly every month since 2014. Today, we go inside the business. I recently met three different entrepreneurs who gave me unusual perspective on what it's like to get into this industry and where it's headed. We were able
2: to start Denver Relief back in 2009 with $4,000 and half a pound of cannabis as a delivery service.
3: My average customer is 43 years old. We track more heavy on the 70-, 65-, 60-year-old than we do on the 21-, 23-, 24-year-old.
4: The definition of the cannabis industry is people who are touching the plant And there is a whole surrounding ecosystem of businesses that support cannabis.
0: This is part of a series of reports this week. Roughly five years into Colorado's legalization of recreational marijuana, other states and even the entire country of Canada are looking here to see how it's going. So we're talking to Coloradans on the front lines of cannabis. The customers, law enforcement, and today, business. Kayvon Kalatbari agreed to be my tour guide of sorts. Uh, There is me in the chicken looper costume. He started advocating for legal recreational marijuana
2: years ago. Uh, That would have been in 2006. With an
0: old lady laughing at you. Lillian Fisher,
2: yes. Uh, She was pointing at me and laughing.
0: The walls of his cannabis consulting firm are lined with photos from the past dozen years, often from when he appeared in the newspaper. Like this gem, Kalatbari in a chicken suit. The chicken suit was a a full-body chicken
2: suit with uh, red leggings and and nice big floppy plastic feet, the full chicken head. He used to
0: put on the suit and follow around then-Mayor John Hickenlooper, now governor of Colorado, to challenge him to a debate about the benefits of cannabis. Colet and other early activists saw Hickenlooper, who'd previously owned a brew pub, as hypocritical on the issue.
2: After we passed Initiative 100 in in 2005, which decriminalized cannabis for adults, and we were the first major city in America to do that, arrests went up in Denver, and uh, he refused to debate us on that topic.
0: Khalid Bari says his early motivations were around social justice and health, and they still are today. He says the drug war has hurt people much more than it's helped, and that activism propelled him into the business side, first in medical marijuana, before the recreational stuff was legal. So many of the early advocates became the early entrepreneurs when there was a legitimate industry to start. How is that for you? It
2: was the people on the ground, you know, that had been um, operating in a gray area or uh, even operating in an illicit market um, that really had the opportunity to finally move this into the light, to be regulated, to to start paying taxes, to create jobs on the books. I was at a very uh, point in my life where I didn't have uh, many means. I had just started a pizzeria um, nine months sooner, spent every penny I had, and we were able to start Denver Relief back in 2009 with $4,000 and half a pound of cannabis as a delivery service.
0: Tell me about walking up to a door, up to a patient. Is there anyone who sticks out in your mind? Uh, you know, yeah, I'd probably say, uh,
2: the, the people that you wouldn't associate as the cannabis consumer, uh, you know, having, uh, the soccer mom. We always met people in a public space the first time because often, uh, folks found us in the back of the Westward or, um, in some other ad that we put out there in a print magazine.
0: And so out of a minivan steps, as you say, a soccer mom, and did that surprise you back then? You know, I don't think it was
2: surprising uh, the person using it. I think it was more surprising the the knowledge uh, Mm -hmm. that some of these folks had. I think it showed that there was use for a while, um, that this wasn't a new thing to everybody. I think that was more surprising. I knew a lot of folks that dabbled in cannabis, right? But uh, there were some very consistent users that I just would have never
0: guessed, You're not in cannabis products anymore. That's not your business. You sold the retail business. Why? Well, we still operate in other states, but did divest
2: fully in our Colorado operations. We did that for a few reasons. Uh, The day-to-day of it was, you know, after seven years of operation became a little much. And uh, just in my case, wanted to get back to advocacy more. But I also saw the cannabis industry moving in a direction that I'm not quite fond of. You know, I think that there's still a lot of good out there. I think the potential still there, uh, but I think we've seen a lot of outside money come into the state and take control of businesses and make it about bottom line, uh, but we're still a consultant with the hope of not just helping aspiring entrepreneurs, um, but existing businesses learn how to operate responsibly in this industry to make sure that they're considerate of minority and underserved inclusion, environmental stewardship, to make sure that we're pushing this forward in a very responsible way, that we're not getting lost uh, in some of the stereotypes or some of the bottom line pursuits that I think a lot of folks are now getting involved in the cannabis industry for.
0: Kayvon Kalatbari's consulting group is one sign that this industry is way bigger than just grow houses and dispensaries. All of these other businesses have popped up around cannabis in Colorado. Khalid Bari introduced me to one called Work. It does payroll and HR specifically for marijuana companies.
4: A friend of mine owned a dispensary. He had been dropped by six different payroll
0: companies because his business touched cannabis. Keegan Peterson is the founder and CEO of Work. That's spelled with a U and an umlaut, by the way. Peterson calls it a smiley face with a U. He was a business major. He worked with companies you may have heard of, PetSmart, Target, Kronos. And then that friend of his needed some payroll expertise. And so he asked me to
4: come in and help him out. And so we partnered with cannabis banks um, to be able to process payroll and taxes for the industry. And I think now we're in 27 states and we're the largest
0: tax remitter on behalf of the cannabis industry. It strikes me that you are an example of how the marijuana business is about so much more than the plant. All of these accessory businesses that have to support this industry.
4: Yeah, and I think a lot of the numbers that are coming out are very focused on how big the cannabis industry is. And the definition of the cannabis industry is people who are touching the plant. And there is a whole uh, surrounding ecosystem of businesses that support cannabis. So you've been able to create some kind of relationship with banks that can do this work? I thought we heard the banks can't. There's roughly 25 financial institutions that have uh, stepped into the space to support the cannabis industry. The challenge is is they they have to build relationships with the regulators. It's very labor intensive for a bank to be willing to take on the risk of supporting the, the industry. Most of these banks are state chartered banks. And they've got insurance that resides within that state, or it's private insurance, or it's credit union insurance. And so there are banks that have stepped up. It doesn't support nearly
2: the needs of the industry. I would say maybe 15%, 20%. I, I think there are uh, even more banks that are serving the industry. You know, We operate in Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania.
0: We have banks in all those. We have several banks in those states. What are some of the other ancillary businesses around cannabis that don't touch plants, that we just might not think of. Really, any supportive product or
2: service, you really did find a lot of hesitancy in people willing to support the industry the
4: seed to sale tracking, the
2: inventory tracking,
4: a lot of things that are just typical
2: infrastructure
4: for a business, the cannabis industry did not and still doesn't have as much access to.
2: You get down into security services, uh, folks weren't willing to you know, bring their guards on site because of this uh, federal issue with having weapons tied to a federally illegal drug, even office supplies. I mean, we've had people that wouldn't, once they found out we were a cannabis business, deliver office supplies to us like they would any other business.
0: But businesses like work that are flourishing seem to show the genie is out of the bottle when it comes to legalized marijuana. Yet Governor John Hickenlooper doesn't foreclose on the possibility of trying to shoo it back in,
5: as he told CNN. If the data was coming back and we saw spikes in violent crime, we saw spikes in overall crime, uh, there'd be a lot of people looking for that bottle, right, and, and figuring out how we get the genie back in.
0: And yet the thought of all these jobs, all these companies closing is hard to imagine, especially as more Republicans and Democrats, even in Congress, show support for marijuana. But beyond politics or federal law, the bigger threat to these businesses might just be competition from bigger fish. It seems like this business work has thrived on the idea that the big players in payroll have had no interest in getting involved with cannabis. Are there ways in which that's starting to change for some of these ancillary businesses?
2: Yeah. You know, I think the bigger companies in general, as as there's more investment pouring into the cannabis industry, are becoming more comfortable in it.
0: So who are you seeing attracted
2: that would have turned their back on you 10 years ago? Oh, I think uh, everybody. Um, (laughs) I mean, when I I think about who we borrowed money from when we started Denver Relief, I probably borrowed from uh, 80 different sources the money that we needed to get Denver Relief up and running because no one would do it, and they were at incredibly high interest rates. But now you have people being competitive in lending, and you're actually starting to see some traditional uh, lending institutions uh, start to play in in lending to the cannabis space. Things are changing right now, and and people want to get in before... This, this goes
4: completely legal, and then they miss their opportunity. So there's a big shift in capital um, coming into the industry from folks that were typically very conservative investors.
2: I think one industry that's probably fueled this as, as much as any other is the tech industry. They're uh, really used to taking risks. They're used to being on the forefront of new industries. And I think that we've seen a lot of those people feel really comfortable and, and almost see in the cannabis industry what they saw in tech uh, 15, 20 years ago. Give me names. Most folks that are in on that have have been in some part uh, of you know, Google and Microsoft's rise, there are people that have left those that have made their fortunes that are now looking for the next big thing.
0: Does this mean that smaller companies are closing
2: the ones who are loyal to the industry? Yeah. I mean that's one of my biggest frustrations uh, with the industry right now is the consolidation that's happening. Uh, I would venture to say the number of operators is probably 30% unique operators, what it was five years ago. And the mom and pop simply don't have the scale uh, to provide and produce cannabis at the cost of some of these places that have massive facilities that incorporate a ton of automation, that have multiple retail outlets, businesses that are really pushing their products. So it's becoming very, very difficult for mom-and-pop operations to exist, especially Thrive. Why do you react badly to that? Uh, Because I think the cannabis industry was really born out of something that was driven by a community, that was driven by individuals that were willing to take risks. And I think the more that we see the industry get placed into the hands of investors that don't even live in this state, it ruins the opportunities that entrepreneurs have uh, to create businesses that are considerate of the communities in which they operate we're seeing that go away in a big way Uh, not just in colorado but across the country and uh, it's just not what i i think had dreamed for of the cannabis industry when i got involved in the commerce of it about nine years ago
0: and yet it's a sign of its success that big money wants in
2: you know, it is. And I'm, I'm not, you know, chiding uh, the big businesses that want to get big. I think that's fair. You're always going to have Coors and, and Miller and InBev. And, you know, the, like the consolidation in liquor, I think, is a great example of where the cannabis industry is probably headed. But you're also seeing this movement of craft, um, small batch, you know, something that is higher quality. Uh, I'll be very honest and say that I don't buy cannabis from dispensaries in Colorado anymore because I don't believe that you can find the kind of quality uh, that I've become accustomed to.
0: You're essentially buying from small batch home growers.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, similar to, uh, you know, friends that uh, brew small batch beer. Fascinating.
0: Fascinating. If you did a double take like I did, Khalid Bari says it's legit as long as his flyers don't turn a profit. Our third stop on a tour of businesses is a highly unusual dispensary. Unusual because its owner Wanda James is one of the few African American entrepreneurs.
3: This is all the recreational counter gummies and chocolates. We have a top five American chocolatier that was trained in France that does a brand. We've got sexual lube infused with cannabis. We've got pain cream. We have pain patches, bath soaks.
0: Her shop is called Simply Pure. It's in the upscale Highlands neighborhood of Denver, and her customers might not be what you expect.
3: What I always find really lovely and really warm are the people that come in that are over the age of sixty five that you can tell have probably tried cannabis throughout their lives and they come in here with this amazement and this look of wonderment and just i mean they 've been through it all right i mean they 've been through you know the hippie part and everything else and and now they 're actually seeing a store a store in the middle of a hot neighborhood and We track more heavy on the 70-, 65-, 60-year-old than we do on the 21-, 23-, 24-year-old.
0: James guides us off the showroom floor to a bustling back room for her employees. And I wonder, if there are so many big fish entering the market, has she gotten offers to sell, make a pretty penny and walk away?
3: Yeah, I think everybody in this industry gets offers to sell and... No, at this point, we haven't thought about taking them up. You know, there's more for it to morph into. So I think that we are now at that point with the industry becoming more mainstream and with Canada becoming legal mid-2018, this year, we're going to start to see companies that are actually being traded on a stock exchange in a, you know, in, a, in a country that are going to be traded from country to country. Do I hear that you want an IPO? You know, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily an IPO or if it's being a part of a larger company that is publicly traded. But I think that obviously now when you start looking at cannabis, not just being a Colorado thing or a Denver thing, or even a United States thing, that it's now a North America thing. We're going to see Mexico Probably follow suit. So we have to take a look now at what does that mean, you know, from a business standpoint. And I think that that's where every cannabis company is getting ready for.
0: So you're not just looking at this street corner here in Denver's Highlands neighborhood. You're looking across North America and saying, what place does my business have? Of course. Kayvon, you help lead a national group called the Minority Cannabis Business Association, essentially a trade group to get more diverse people into the industry. What is the state of ownership these days in terms of African-Americans
2: or Hispanics? Yeah, the, the state of it's not good. Um, I can't remember the last industry group meeting where there was an owner or a high-level executive here in Colorado that was a person of color, if it's not Wanda, or it's not Brandon Banks of Natural Selections up in
0: Boulder. When you got into this business, did you see many other African-Americans who were also cannabis entrepreneurs?
3: No. <laughs> No, and and for lots of really good reasons A, you know, even in the city of Denver 34% of the arrests for possession in Denver were African American and this is why the NAACP was behind legalization So, no, there weren't a lot of black people There were none during that time When I look at politics, I mean, I came out of politics When I looked around the table in Colorado you didn't see a lot of black and brown faces So, in Colorado, that's more of a norm than it is a You know, oh, this is odd.
0: Being a woman of color was a real driver behind her decision to open a dispensary.
3: My husband and I got into this business um, (laughs) oddly because we knew they weren't going to be able to make criminals out of us.
0: James says too many people of color were getting arrested for drug possession, including her own brother.
3: He was incarcerated in Texas, in Huntsville, Texas. His felony is now 10 years in his past, so he can now participate again doing what he does in the family business.
0: So how does the industry move the needle on diversity? Well, the minority cannabis business group that Kayvon Kalitbari is part of has some ideas. They're pushing model legislation in states that are legalizing now, like sentencing relief for people caught with marijuana before it was legal. After all, Blacks and Latinos disproportionately have pot on their records. And James and Kalitbari say there's more Denver and Colorado can do to level the playing field. In fact, they sound like a lot of business owners in any industry when they call for less regulation. Like the fact that right now, Denver is not allowing any new dispensaries.
3: If you want to own a dispensary in Denver, that means you have to buy one. And that costs millions. So it becomes even more prohibitive in a place like Colorado to see more minority ownership.
0: Khalid Bari hopes to get an even bigger platform for his message of social responsibility in cannabis. Kayvon, you're running for mayor. I am. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, I, I, I am running, um, but I should you know, note that I'm not a, a cannabis candidate.
0: What do you want to fight for as mayor when it comes to minority opportunities in this industry, though? I mean, personally, I'd like to see a lot of these taxes
2: that we're collecting go to these communities that have been most disenfranchised and impacted by the war
0: on drugs. So a man who once chased after Denver's mayor to dog him on marijuana policy now wants to be in charge. Are you prepared to be the guy who is chased by someone in a chicken suit as opposed to being the one wearing the chicken suit? You know, if,
2: if I'm afraid to have uh, what I thought was a pretty easy conversation at the time, then I probably
0: deserve to be chased around in a chicken suit, you bet. It's common for politicians to come from business, maybe just not this one. So that's our tour of cannabis companies, the cannabis space, as I now know insiders call it. Tomorrow, the customers. Who is propping up the marijuana industry?
2: When I got here to Colorado, started using cannabis, and I just started stripping away the medications one at a time. The first
0: things to go were the opiate narcotics.
3: So I'm Amanda Hitz, and I teach Ben and Blaze yoga and cannabis-enhanced yoga.
0: Again, that's tomorrow. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Underground Railroad Game is a new play about race in America. It's been called Shocking and Lacerating Comedy. It is based on a game Scott Shepard played in middle school, an experience that stuck with the playwright for years. He joins me along with co-writer Jennifer Kidwell, ahead of the premiere this week at Curious Theatre Company in Denver. Welcome to you both.
5: Hi. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank okay,
0: there there are two characters in this play. Caroline, played by you, Jennifer, and Stuart, played by you, Scott. They're both middle school teachers. And early on in the show, they explain the rules for this underground railroad game. What are the rules?
5: Uh, well, the rules of the game are pretty much as they were laid out to me when I was in middle school, and we actually played a game like this. But basically the entire... Um, The entire unit that the teachers are engaging is themed around the Civil War. So it's a live-action role-playing game, and the students are split into Confederate soldiers and Union soldiers. And you have to play your way to victory by educating yourself on the Civil War. So there are a bunch of different games, but the Underground Railroad game, that specific uh, part of the larger unit, is a game where – the Union students or the Union soldiers are uh, supposed to transport these dolls around to different boxes throughout the school, which are labeled safe houses. But oh, the and dolls the, represent slaves. That's right. Yeah. The dolls are supposed to represent uh, enslaved people and the Confederate students are charged with the task of capturing them. And so there are different points and you uh, you accrue points by capturing slaves quote-unquote slaves, and then you are um, given points if you're able to successfully transport the dolls to different uh, boxes throughout the school.
0: I can understand why this game that you played in middle school might have stuck with you. I'm going to ask you more about that in a moment, but my understanding is that you involve the audience in this game. Help me understand that. Uh,
6: Nobody's asked to come on stage, (laughs) or uh, names are not exchanged but um we divide the audience into armies and so uh there's a f- whatever feelings can come up for an individual audience member depending on which army they're assigned happens um you know and that does, does
0: anyone want to be in the confederacy
6: well i i think that, that would depend on when we're where we're doing the show. Huh. I mean, in this part of the country, too, it strikes me that th- the feelings are going to be quite different because, like, Colorado wasn't even a state, <laughs> right? It wasn't a state yet.
0: I'm going to have to Google that to find it. Well, let's, let's see. Uh, we're the centennial state, so uh, 1776. 1876 is when we become a state. Yeah, so yeah.
6: so here, in fact, like, w- the feelings are going to be different than they are on the yeah. East Coast. And I imagine if we were in a place uh, where folks uh, had very strong and nostalgic ties to the Confederacy, then they might be amped about okay. that. So
0: you're playing the middle school teachers on stage and involving the audience in this. And my goodness, Scott, what a game to have played as a young person.
5: Yeah, I mean, as a as a fifth grade student at that school, uh, we didn't really think twice about it at that time. In fact, it was really kind of exciting to wear T-shirts and carry pieces of wood that we had carved to look like rifles around the school. And we were singing uh, different songs. You know, there would be song competitions of singing Dixie or singing Battle Hymn of the Republic, (laughs) trying to be louder than the other side. So, yeah, I think as I grew up and as I experienced more things, uh, you know, retrospectively, the game uh, started to take on a new character and I started to realize how kind of horrifying and misleading a game like that is. In many ways, it, it, it repeats the same uh, problem that comes up with slavery, with objectifying bodies, right? It's objectifying these bodies in order, to, in order to tell a story that focuses on a very specific white group of people, these kind mm. of white saviors that are connected with the Underground Railroad. I want to note that you are white, Jennifer is black.
0: And what did you make? Of... <laughs> what? That's such a funny note. <laughs> well, it's radio, right? Yeah, like, yeah that's this, true. This is part of the discussion. But tell me why that makes you laugh before we <laughs> carry well, that I, any further.
6: It was so funny. I mean, I, I think that, that that move on your part is actually uh, – I am going to assume and correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're trying to do is, is offer some context to people about why the two of us might be, uh, what might've made the show and what is involved in the show. And then it also strikes me that that context is, is really tricky and difficult because, you know, to, to say these, these like colors and then associate them with, with race, like there's a breadth of, (laughs) of things about, both of us that those things don't encapsulate. I so I right. understand the impulse and I I think it's important, but you know,
0: Right, there's so much more about you than uh, that racial label. I'll say that there are actually quite strict rules in journalism about when you identify the race of your subject. In this case, because it yeah, is so intimately connected <laughs> with the story, burned
6: in the past. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, But because it's so intimately connected with the story, I, yeah. I felt it important. and, and I want to get your reaction, Jennifer, when you heard about Scott having played this game in middle school and and what kind of fodder it was for a play.
6: Um, well, I thought it was one of the most bizarre things I'd ever heard. I mean, I think it was really late, actually. A group of us were hanging out, and I was just like... I remember laughing and just being like, that is crazy. Oh. <laughs> I, like, I think I said that's the craziest thing I've ever heard, but that's, that's not true. But it's definitely up there. Um, and, like, super troubling to think that... You know, in the middle of Pennsylvania, which is the state in which I now reside, um in this small town in this school where there's mostly uh white school children um to think that this this system in history is being taught this way, yeah. and then thinking like those are the people you know people coming out of that school are people w- we all have to deal with and and that that is. Well-intentioned or not, you know, bless. but that's, uh, that's a wrong, that pedagogy is wrong.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Hurtful, you say. And we're talking about the Underground Railroad game ahead of its premiere this week at Curious Theater Company. It is a new play about race in America. And uh, it is based on a game that playwright Scott Shepard uh, was involved in when he was a kid in his middle school classroom. And as the play goes on, it becomes very clear that that your two characters, these two middle school teachers, have really different perspectives on slavery in America. What How, how do their views differ?
5: Well, uh, it gets a little thorny, actually, because we really use those teachers as a jumping-off place to explore things about the unconscious, and we end up playing kind of different characters beyond those two teachers. So... Yeah, sometimes there are uh, – I, I would say my character specifically has a very uh, – has a kind of selfishness about his attempt to understand history and to understand social justice. A selfishness? Yeah. What do you mean? Um, I think in his attempt to be this uh, hero of the story, he ends up making – troubling uh, occurrences about him <laughs> and about his attempt to make things right and to help people and to save people. So there's a blindness I think from my character about his own attempt to put himself at the center of a story that you he really deserves to him. be at exactly. Interesting. Yeah. How would
0: you describe the difference in how these two characters perceive American slavery?
6: Um, it's funny. The piece addresses the system of slavery, but actually isn't quite about slavery. Um, and it's really about the, like how we narrativize, how we tell ourselves history. Mm. And so at the center of the piece, um, uh if you can imagine two triangles that are sort of stacked on each other with the points touching, I think that and that the where the points touch is the center of the piece, there's a moment in which our characters, who at this point are pretty close to ourselves uh have a disagreement as Scott and I want to do about uh the meaning of certain words <laughs> actually, what's really funny got to do a line through is because I can't remember the first part of your line, but it's something like moving history forward and something something, something are not the same thing. Oh, um, uh, moving history forward. I have to do a line through too. Mo- moving
5: history forward, um, and uh, it's not keeping the past in the past. Right? Line, line. Right. <laughs> yeah, line. But, but yeah, keeping the past in the past. It's, the, it's, it's something the, like that.
6: There's this this moment that that really. Uh, th- so there there are these like kind of wild and very wide ranging ways that these these characters are at odds. But this is sort of like the central point. Is 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 This consideration that uh, the story that we have around history is not a shared story and that we can't privilege one story over the other. And so that in some ways the impulse to make a game like this and there are so many games like I have a friend who's Jewish who's like one or two of his grandparents survived Auschwitz and he went to a camp in California that was a Jewish camp and played like a Nazi game. So this isn't this isn't restricted to... Just that to story. This, yeah, no, 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 no. I think there's an impulse to, to make these things fun. But in doing that, like, we're also... Then it becomes its own story. And so we can't universally, like, apply rules and expect everybody to be able to enter into those stories in the same way. And if we stop trying to privilege one over the other and stop trying to convince people that their feelings about history are wrong, then perhaps... We can do a little like all of us can heal a little bit
0: and tell a maybe a more common story. This is all really heavy stuff, and yet you've written the play, "The Underground Railroad Game" as a comedy.
5: Yeah, <laughs> right. Like <laughs> what a dare! So no.
0: <laughs> you were saying that you 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 don't like the idea that the game makes the the issue fun, and yet comedy, I would say, is is a more fun drama perhaps than. For fun genre than drama, so yeah, so I mean,
6: it, comedy isn't even a monolith. Like this is this is falling in satire. It's falling in a discipline right. mm. called bouffon, in which um, there's hilarity and people might be laughing, but uh, it, it's also very pointed and and barbed. Um, so you just because you're laughing doesn't mean that you're not also in pain. It doesn't mean that you're not frustrated and. You know, you use the same muscle group to laugh and cry. Huh. Uh, and it, it's, it's been that's <laughs> that was so, so, beautiful. That was so beautiful. So uh, beautiful.
0: The, the play has been called
5: shocking, yeah. not for the faint of heart. Uh, we, In many ways, the the comedy is uh, it's a comedy about comedy too. It is about why you laugh when you laugh and how humor is connected to how you process things that are really truthful Mm. and really traumatizing and really hidden.
6: Yeah. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And it was
5: making progress. (laughs) Thank you. For those dramaturgs keeping track at home, uh, making progress or moving history forward are not the same thing. Moving
6: history forward and making progress are not the same thing.
5: Not the same thing. I'm so glad we got the line in.
6: (laughs) We got the line in. (laughs) Our stage managers hopefully are breathing a sigh of relief. relief, (laughs) yes.
0: You heard from Jennifer Kidwell and Scott Shepard. They're the writers behind the award-winning play Underground Railroad Game. It opens Thursday at Denver's Curious Theater and runs through July 1st. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This music is about a time on Earth none of us experienced. Composer David Ludwig was inspired by the period 250 million years ago before people or dinosaurs when there was one giant supercontinent Pangea. He sticks with the original Greek, calling it Pangea. It premiered at the Bravo Vale Music Festival. Oh, that's some tension. To tell us about this music and the story behind it. I'm joined by Brad Turner from CPR Classical. He's host of a podcast called Centennial Sounds. It's about living composers. The second season of Centennial Sounds from CPR Classical is now out. Hi, Brad. Hi, Ryan. What makes this particular piece of music relevant today, 250 million years later?
7: Well... David Ludwig's an interesting composer. He loves to write music about science. He's written about the rings of Saturn and about the Voyager space probe. This one is about the earth at a time before dinosaurs, um, just before uh, something that scientists call the Permian-Triassic extinction event, which is when a huge fraction of the species on the planet were wiped out. Life had taken uh, hundreds of millions of years to get to this point, and life was vastly diminished in a few tens of thousands of years. Wow. And um, scientists say uh, the culprit, the big culprit, is climate change. It's greenhouse gases that caused the planet to become so inhospitable to all these species that were there. So uh, because of that, the piece has an unusual sound at the ending. And um, I discussed that with uh, David Ludwig. We're talking about prehistoric times, but this is also a commentary on what we face today. Yeah, it's a little autobiographical from the
2: point of being a human. <laughs> so, you know, most of my concertos end with a bang. Uh, this one definitely ends with a, with a whimper. It kind of trails off, it vamps, it fades um, really into nothing. And it's just suddenly there's no sound
0: at the end of it. The Sound of Extinction. Well, Centennial Sounds, this podcast, Brad, gets the story behind one piece of music, and then we sit back and hear the whole piece. Uh, nice. Where did where did your interest in contemporary classical music come from? I'm curious.
7: Right. <laughs> I have to say, I think it's always been there. Um... I started playing the upright bass, uh, the bass fiddle in the orchestra when I was in third grade. And they let me take home the instrument before I'd ever had a lesson. And I was so excited to play it that um, I was making up these little pieces of music, and I had no idea where to put the bow on the strings. Okay. <laughs> so I was playing on the wrong side of the bridge. Uh, it was this horrible, squealing mess. And um, I took... Um, I took that piece of music back to my teacher when I had my first lesson and she was mortified. (laughs) But, um... I've always liked uh music that's a little different, that's a little challenging.
0: Yeah, you were making avant-garde music back then is actually the point. That's right. Uh-huh. Yes,
7: yes. And my parents were uh very nice and supportive of it. And uh that continued into college. I worked on some computer music where I was doing fun things with um, washes of white noise that were randomly generated by computers. So... All kinds of stuff. You make a point to interview
0: composers in this podcast, where they work, uh, even though you can't really show us that space in a podcast. So uh, tell us about a, a place you visited and maybe what clue it gave you into the art.
7: You know, usually we really uh, like to get outside of a recording studio and go to where they work. We find composers are more relaxed. They're more at home there. I'll go to their home studio. I'll go to a classroom where they teach. And I had a really good experience with the latest episode. I talked to a composer named Daniel Kellogg. He's a professor at CU. Okay. And his string quartet, his new string quartet, had just premiered at the Aspen Music Festival and school. And he said it was his favorite concert hall in the world. Because um, he had been a student at the Aspen Music Festival in school at the start of his career. I think he was still a teenager. And he heard this cycle of string quartets by Bela Bartok, performed by excellent musicians. And it was like nothing he'd heard before. It was this eye-opening moment, and it changed his life hearing this music. So how beautiful to have come full circle. Right, right. And uh, I think that hearing that story and how powerful that moment was to him in that place, helped understand his music a little better. Well, let's hear
0: a bit from that latest episode featuring Daniel Kellogg. I came here in
7: 1994 as a
4: music student and got to hear my first ever Bartok cycle of string quartets with Emerson.
7: He's talking about the Emerson String Quartet. Picture this young composer, just out of high school, hearing Bartok's unusual string quartets for the first time.
4: And that was a musical memory which just still drives me to this day in in just pursuing writing and listening to concerts and making music. Seeing them do that from just a few feet away was extraordinary.
0: This is Colorado Matters, and we're talking with Brad Turner, host of Centennial Sounds, the podcast from CPR Classical. Its second season just premiered, and I want to hear some music from an upcoming episode featuring a composer named Jessica Meyer. Uh, Then you can tell us a bit about the backstory.
7: So Jessica Meyer is a really unique composer. She's a violist. She plays her viola, but she runs it through something called a looping pedal, which means that you play a few notes or a few chords, and then this looping pedal feeds that music back to you, and you can let it play, or you can add more layers on top of it. You can sound bigger than you are. Much bigger. And um, this is one of her sort of signature sounds. Um, She was set to play a concert and debut a brand-new piece, at The Tank, this really unique venue in Rangeley, Colorado that we've covered a few times. Yeah, it's
0: an old, like, water tank, and it has amazing acoustics inside.
7: Right, sounds like a cathedral uh, inside, and it's sort of out in the desert. Um, and she gets there, and her looping pedal doesn't work at all in this space. The mix of the loops and the reverb causes a total meltdown, and her brand new piece is totally out the window. It's, it's not going to work. So with a few hours, uh, the same day as the concert, she goes into the tank, reworks the music, writes something really sparse and beautiful, and she reached really deep. Her, her father was suffering from an illness, and uh, there's a lot of sadness in this piece. There's a lot of um, grief. There's, there's thoughts about love for a parent. And she just wrote this really powerful music about in it.
0: just a few hours... Hmm. You can almost hear the crying in a way, the w- the wailing that might be associated with loss. Yes. Okay. I have this uh, thought that, that many classical audiences uh, are wary of, of new compositions and of newer composers and that uh, the the tried and true stuff is really where their attention is.
7: Do you think that's true? I think it's true for some listeners. And I think a lot of people just don't know this music's here. Um, and so our goal is to find some music that's unique that tells an interesting story and kind of um, use the storytelling to really connect listeners with something they'll love. And we've had some topical composers on. We've had composers reflect on 9-11. Uh, we've had composers reflect on the Pulse nightclub shooting. Cool. Uh, composers suffered with postpartum, um, postpartum mental illness and, and wrote a piece about that and used it to become an advocate and raise awareness about that cause. Um, so – I think it's kind of a tragedy and not that many people know about these talented composers who live in Colorado and bring their music to Colorado. And that's what the show is about. Trying to change that and raise
0: that awareness with the podcast Centennial Sounds. Brad, thanks. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Brad Turner is the host of that CPR Classical podcast. The second season's underway. You can listen and subscribe at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This is more music from an upcoming episode. Composer Paul Lansky's percussion piece called Travel Diary, recorded at the Bravo Vale Music Festival. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.